Fundamentally, strategy is choice. It's the choice of the interaction, the activities that you're going to do that, you know, move your business forward or different, ultimately differentiate you from a competitor. But at the beginning, it's just like, I am at a fork in the road. I can go down this path or the other. I can't go down both simultaneously. There's some decisions that are one-way door. You cannot get back. Most decisions in life, especially early on, and whether it's tech or kind of a go-to-market, most are like the two-way door. You can easily back out of it. And that's that was kind of our perspective that there was just going to inevitably be a lot of experimentation. My name is David Cicerelli, the CEO and co-founder of Voices. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart. And today, how David Cicerelli created the number one audio services marketplace through a chance voice recording project. All this and more on Code Story. David Cicerelli is a husband to his partner in life and business, Stephanie, and a dad to four kids, one boy and three girls. He loves to be doing anything outdoors, hiking, biking, etc., and has a cottage out in the country. His most memorable hike was near his hometown at the Provincial Park, where he climbed up to the top of the Sleeping Giant. Being a true Canadian, he was able to direct my suspicions about poutine, which is french fries, gravy, and cheese curds, aka an indulgent dish. He said that it's more of a regular favorite in places like Old Quebec, but most people enjoy it perhaps once a year, as you can't really have it every day. Growing up, David loved experimenting with sound, playing piano, tuning into radio stations, and tinkering with an old record player. He discovered there was an audio engineering program at school and set out with the goal of starting a small project recording studio. He met his now wife and co-founder through their first voice recording project which then began to be advertised and attract more and more talent. This is the creation story of Voices.com. Voices is an online marketplace. We connect uh, voice buying clients. Think of people at advertising agencies, video production companies, uh, with that voice talent. Uh, folks who have home recording studios, they've got a great voice, you know, first and foremost, but they build a home recording studio uh, where they can uh, read scripts. And it might be a 30 second radio commercial, um, a spot on a podcast, it might be, you know, a video, an explainer video. And fundamentally, you know, these clients are looking for that great voice to tell their story, to, you know, educate, inform, and entertain their audience. But they don't know how to do it. You know, they, they have a script written. What, where do I go to find a great voice? So we've tried to fill that, uh, that gap. Um, traditionally, um, those same kind of clients or buyers, if you will, they'd often work with a, with a, you know, a, a talent agency or an advertising agency who might hire a talent agency or a casting director and file actors in one after another into a recording studio. And that process would take you know, a couple weeks time, you know, a casting director, you know, people with the golden ears who sit in those high chairs, you know, they, they cost like $1,500 for a day in New York City and LA. And we looked at that whole process and said, 
hey, how do you how do you digitize that? How do you bring it from the offline experience and just create the digital equivalent of each of those steps in the process? So that's uh you know there's there's lots of what we would know nowadays is like a freelance marketplace or kind of a gig marketplace. There's lots of them that are out there. Um, you know, arguably the two biggest by far would be Upwork and Fiverr, who I have great respect and, and admiration for, given how far they've come. And what we've heard and understand is that there's increasingly kind of more specialized or niche verticals. Now we've been at this for uh, you know well over uh, just over 15 years. So, uh, but we've just kind of picked this one vertical market and just gone, uh, just gone after it uh, all the way. But that—that's kind of what Voices is. I'd say most entrepreneurs, you know, are either trying to scratch their own itch or they had some experience early on that they realized, wow, I might try to pursue this as a career, and perhaps that even turns into a business. And that was really my my experience. You know, growing up, I I loved sound. I played piano. I tinkered with. My dad had this old shortwave radio that I could tune into radio stations from around the world. Uh, we had an old record player that I could listen to, like basically rec- the recorded or spoken word, uh, al- along with a lot of music. So I just tinkered with audio technology, if you will. And when it came to finding, you know, a career path, uh, I actually uh, discovered there was an audio engineering school, and I went through that experience. Uh, you know, and I remember on the first day of school, the kind of the, you know, the, the headmaster, if you will, like held up these two things, like a, a tennis ball in one hand and a microphone in the other and said, and he was standing in front of this big mixing console, like this 128 channel mixing console that looked like the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. It was so intimidating. And he held these two things up and he goes, if you don't know the difference between a tennis ball and a microphone, like, don't worry about it. You're here. You know, you qualified to get in. You're obviously passionate about audio. Uh, we're going to teach you everything. And there was this just the collective sigh of relief. And so I recall that because I just went and just went so deep uh, into it and really got the most out of that experience. And upon graduating, I realized, you know, could work in another studio, could go do live sound on cruise ships. There's all kinds of really cool opportunities. But I wanted to start my own small project recording studio. So I did just that. I got a small, uh, you know, small $15,000 bank loan, bought some recording equipment and opened up a little project studio in uh, our hometown of London, Ontario. And no, I actually got my uh, I got my name in the newspaper uh, on my birthday. It was actually a a feature in Business London. And it was like a half page photo and then a, a story about this small little studio I opened up. And it turns out that uh, Stephanie, who's now, of course, my wife, uh, and she's the co-founder of the company. At the time, she's a classically trained singer. She was at the music program at the university. And she'd sing at weddings and, and funerals and other special events on weekends. Her mom read that newspaper article, cut it out for her, left it on her bed and said, hey, you should go get your singing repertoire recorded so you can hand out you know, CDs or, you know, links to like your audio recordings for, for somebody to hire you. And so Stephanie ended up coming down to the studio. We, we hit it off, recorded her singing repertoire, but there were other small businesses that wanted a female voice to record a voiceover, uh, f- some phone system recordings and local commercials. And uh, being kind of a nerd, I only knew one girl in the city, which was Stephanie, who I just met the day before. I said, 
hey Stephanie, you've got a great voice. How about, uh, I've got a gig that's, that's come up. I'll be the engineer and you be the female voice talent and you'd read it, I'll record it and we'll split the money 50-50. And that's how we ended up started working together. And soon we kind of put up this, uh, you know, rather primitive site um, and featured Stephanie as the one voice talent. And uh, that's kind of how it all began. We'd get, you know, inquiries that, that, would, that would come in looking for um, to hire her or asking about other talent as well. But that was really the genesis of us kind of co-founding both, I think, pursuing a passion and an area of interest and then realizing, we got, wow, this is working. How do we market ourselves better um, online and through the web? You know, I, I jokingly say that I, I married my first customer, which is not marital advice whatsoever, but it just it just happened to work out. Well, well, tell me about the MVP. So tell me about that first product. Maybe it's that first site or a little bit further along. You, you decide. But tell me about that first MVP, how long it took you and Stephanie to build and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life. As I described, it was a it was a brochure style website I uh, initially used to advertise the recording studio I operated before launching Voices. Um, the site I designed entirely myself, borrowing books from the local public bi- library. Uh, I took a web design for dummies. Uh, I downloaded a version of Dreamweaver from LimeWire, a file sharing company, uh, file sharing site. Uh, also fetch an FTP client and that allowed me to basically download a static HTML page, make the changes in Dreamweaver and then re-upload. And Dreamweaver is like a WYSIWYG, what you see is what you get type editor. And then re-upload. Yeah, that's why I figured I'd, I'd, I'd explain that. But I mean, this is like, you're basically hand coding static pages and there was no database. Uh, and so those are some of the first tools. And, you know, when we, you know, the, the, just to kind of fill in the gap from like Stephanie to having the first number of other voice talent, like it, it was, it was this static website, other freelance voice talent would discover it through Google or some links that would put in like the old Yahoo directory or something along these lines. And they would say, oh, I see you have one female voice. You know, I speak French. I'm a male voice talent. I'm, you know, I'm, I, I can do child voices or young adult voices. And, you know, the question was always, hey, can I, can you put a link on my web, on your website and have a little link to a sample of my voice? And we always just said yes. And so that got up to, you know, a hundred names on it or so. Uh, and that was like the aha moment of going, wow, this is really emerging to become a two-sided marketplace connecting buyer and seller online from just this static directory. But uh, anytime one of those talent wanted to change something on their profile, so like we hand-coded, like we had a template, but we hand-coded all their profile, we would literally have to, there was no login system, like we'd have to download the page make the changes, re-upload them, go and send them an email and be like, look good now, you know? And they'd be like, yeah, this looks good to me. Like it was incredibly tedious. So we we did end up um, hiring a, a web developer who, you know, built a, you know, a database and a login system so that talent could be more self-sufficient while at the same time, those clients, uh, they could actually log in and post a job. And that was 
fundamentally the the two um, you know kind of interactions that we needed to happen. We need to have in any two-sided marketplace sufficient supply in this case the freelancer or the talent who have complete profiles and then you got to generate the demand you know which are those clients posting jobs looking for work to get done so that was extremely manual at the beginning but uh, the, the database and the login system was uh, definitely a step forward before we move on from that first uh, product, I want to dig into a couple of things, though. So, you know, with any MVP, first product, p- pilot, prototype, you've got to make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? Uh, and it sounds like, you know, it started with you and Stephanie. Stephanie was the, the first talent. I understand how you got there, and then people started reaching out, and you made decisions to add them to the site, right? Tell me about some of those decisions you made around the technology, right? Around, okay, we're not going to update it yet. We're going to stick with the template. Um, and how you coped with those decisions, how you made those decisions and, and, um, and went through that process. Well, I, I love that you're using the word choices and decisions because fundamentally strategy is choice. If you remember anything about strategy is such a bantered around word, but fundamentally it's the choice of the interaction, like the, 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 the activities that you're going to do that you know, move your business forward or different, ultimately differentiate you from a competitor. But at the beginning, it's just like, I am at a fork in the road. I can go down this path or the other. I can't go down both simultaneously. And like every, I'm sure everyone's heard like Bezos talks about the one-way door. Like this, there's some decisions that are one-way door. You cannot get back. Most decisions in life, especially early on and whether it's tech or kind of a go-to-market, most are like the two-way door. You can easily back out of it. And that's that was kind of our perspective that there was just gonna inevitably be a lot of experimentation. But the, the first kind of decision that was felt major to us was, uh, you know, going from like a shared hosting environment to a dedicated server. Um, we had everything on Rackspace, like one, you know, one box, if you will, on Rackspace for years. That was a pretty key um, decision. Another one was we actually started uh, under a different domain name. It was interactivevoices.com, which is a terrible mouthful of a name. Um, And uh, if I can tell a quick story on that, because I think there's often this like angst of like, when do I do I just get a name to get the first kind of couple hundred people or do I invest in a brand? And we actually used interactive voices up until there was 10,000 users uh, registered users on the platform and it was around the time of like you know twitter and Flickr and everybody it was like this whole web 2.0 movement like 2007 ish and it was everything was like big and bright and bubbly and people were dropping vowels from their name and 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 i was like okay we gotta like we gotta smarten this thing up like what if we could just be like voxy or vox.com or something and you know all of those failed i put in a bid of a hundred thousand dollars for vox.com and and, and miss that auction uh, but we ended up uh, realizing like rather than like a wholesale rebranding what if it was a name simplification I could just be like just voices and just cut out the interactive part and I did what probably many of you have done you just you just you know, type it in, hand bomb it into Google, um, see what's, what's even there, or like do a who is lookup. And uh, it was actually a website called voices.com, silencing the critical voices in your head. And it was a medical journal from 1998 that hadn't been updated since 2000. And I was, 
Yeah, exactly. Well, that's how I felt at the time. I'm like, wow, this is like the critical voice in my own head. I'm like, I'm, I want this name. We ended up uh, meeting a lawyer in this co-working space um, that we that we were working from at the university, and said, hey, do you think you can reach out to this website, this domain owner, ask them if they would sell the name? If so, what price? And he ended up coming back and saying fifty thousand. I'm like, I don't have fifty thousand um, on me. And he's like, Well, what do you have? And I'm like, I have five thousand dollars. He's like, Well, why don't we put together a deal like that's thirty thousand, a little bit more than that, and we'll we'll give him five thousand dollars every quarter, right, for the next six quarters. So we went uh, we went with that offer, and with that, um, the fellow went for the deal. And so we were able to, looking back, we were able to in effect kind of lift and shift the old website to the new website um you know to the new domain sorry uh, on voices.com over a weekend and uh you know the talent at the time were like wow this is great it's such a stronger identity um in fact we even benefited from all of the links like these old you know .edu links that were pointing to this old uh, this previous site and we just got a ton of traffic like the site was registered in 1998 at the time the age of the domain was i think i would argue overweighted in google's you know algorithm and 98 was actually before google itself so it kind of looked like this trust really trustworthy domain and and our organic traffic from google tripled uh, you know vir- virtually over over the weekend so that was like a huge turning point. You just don't know. I think in, I think entrepreneurs are just going to have a high degree of conviction and you weigh the alternatives, pros and cons, you know, um, maybe some rudimentary risk assessment, you know, is this a one-way door? Is it a two-way? Can I back out of this? And in the end, you're like, it's probably just something you want to do. And so you, you make that move. But those were kind of a few of those uh, key decisions that, that stand out in my mind. That's a really cool story of the of the Voices domain and going after it. I love stories like that because I mean, people have domains now and they've had them forever, and you gotta you kind of kind of figure out how to make them happy to get it. Let's dive in a little bit to my next question. So it's around kind of product progression, right? How did you approach progressing the product? How did you approach maturing it? And I think to frame it a little bit, what I'm what I'm interested in is how you built your roadmap and how you decided, okay, this is the next most important thing to build in Voices. So let's start with the really low tech version. Um, we actually, surprise, surprise, asked people. Um, and I had a one line question because the, you know, for, for context, you know, we, we did have a few hundred people, uh, talent, I should say, um, sign up and it was like kind of this just static directory. As soon as we started bringing jobs onto the platform, we did the math and we said, you know, it was like, how do we generate a hundred thousand dollars of sales in, in, in a year? And we figured, well, we can sell an annual subscription you know, what if it was a membership-based website for the voice talent? We're marketing the talent. They're getting access to opportunities perhaps they wouldn't otherwise, and that's valuable to them. And so we we went to market very early on. It was never freemium. It was only a premium membership, which was uh, for $49 a year. And over the first weekend that we sent out that uh, long-form email, 
with a PayPal link at the bottom, we did $5,000 of sales. So we knew like, oh wow, we're definitely on to something. Now we in, in, in effect made a brand promise, Noah, which was in exchange for your $50 annual subscription, we're gonna go out and market and bring clients from ad agencies and video producers to the platform. I think we recognize that oddly at the very, very beginning, you, you probably need, you know, there's the debate of, you know, users first and monetize second. We actually went, we, we, we had kind of this, this initial seed of users of a few hundred. So, and then we, we kind of went quickly to monetize just because there, this was not like, there's no venture backed. We borrowed a bit of money, um, sold off that recording equipment I had mentioned, but I mean, we had a few, like literally a few thousand dollars, kind of that, that was the extent of it. So from there though, what we asked, cause we realized, wow, that clock's gonna be ticking. The talent who subscribed are gonna want two things. They're gonna wanna get a return on their investment for $50, which really meant, hey, can we deliver them a job, at least one job in the next year? The other thing is like, well, are, do we see that you're investing in the platform and so to uncover, you know, what was on the minds of, of uh, the voice talent, and I'm gonna use, you know, for those listening, it's like substitute that of what's on the mind of your customers. We had two simple tools. One was, believe it or not, a toll-free phone number at the top of every page of the website that that phone line went right into our dining room and our dinette from where we were working at it from at the time, just basically a condo. And then eventually we, you know, had that co-working space I mentioned, and it was the same phone number. It's the same phone, one triple eight number that we have today. And I'd always ask, like, you know, nowadays it's all automated. Like, what brought you to the site? But I'd be like, oh, that's, you know, thanks for the call. Just out of curiosity, what, you know, in the closing, like, oh, what brought you to the website today? Based upon like, hey, you've, you've had a chance to navigate around. Is there anything that you, you know, you know, were hoping to find that you couldn't? I'd ask a lot of these survey-based questions that you now see in chatbots, but I was just doing that kind of just naturally and, and I just scribbled notes down. So that was one, ask customers, especially when they're inbound. The other one was sending out an email and it wasn't a survey or anything, it was a simple email. Again, big difference when it comes from a founder or a co-founder and people kind of see that in the, in the subject line. And it was, it was simply, hey, if there was one thing, one thing we could build for you that would knock your socks off, what would that be? And that's exactly how like verbatim I described it. It was like, so people have to think not just like some little incremental thing, it was like the biggest idea that would wow them. And when we talk about the evolution of the product and like it really, we're just describing the ideation, you know, and, and sometimes like, oh yeah, we had that idea. It was like kind of a plus one. Oh, now it's a plus two. Um, so this very, you know, pedestrian or rudimentary approach um, to product innovation, like don't overcomplicate it, basically ask customers and have them direct. Uh, but then there's the, the tension of also needing to kind of monetize your growth along the way as well too. And so while we did start with subscriptions, one of the challenges that is often had with um, freelance work, especially over uh, like online, is the payment mechanism. While we were delivering work and they were, you know, consummating these matches, if you will, between buyer and seller, um, the challenge often came down to payment. And there were enough instances where the talent would do the work, deliver it. And I'm talking like more than a decade ago, but do, do the work, deliver it because it's an MP3 file or a WAV file. 
And then the and then the the buyer would just ghost. They just disappear. And the talent held us responsible, even though we didn't facilitate the payment. They wanted us to act on their behalf, and we realized the the opportunity is to develop what's now known as an escrow service, where in effect voices becomes that trusted intermediary between the talent doing the work and the client who's hiring. And so we actually capture the full payment up front. You know, if you find somebody you want to work with, we capture the payment up front and by credit card. The talent has the peace of mind knowing that they're going to get paid because they see the money's, you know, sitting there in their account. And the client knows in the rare situation the talent suddenly becomes ill or unavailable, um, that we can help them hire somebody else or we'll just refund, um, we'll refund them. Uh, and so that's that's our you know kind of platform monetization um, approach now, and building out that was uh, was a pretty uh, heavy lift uh, as well too. And then uh, you know f- f- you know finally kind of just to close that off, I think more recently, and this was all before there was a VP of product or UXRs or anything. This was just candidly me and a technology leader and kind of a, a, a team of uh, developers um, listening to customers and like kind of filtering it out. Uh, and it, it, the big step change I think for us was uh, hiring a product leader who's since instituted more of like the pragmatic marketing approach to product development, you know, really focusing on market problems, which I was already familiar with, um, and running it through, in effect, you know, a Google design sprint-esque type process, um, you know, kind of starting with like the discovery and design and, and validating along the way, and then um, shipping out in terms of uh, deployment. And so I think that, and, and then we actually always end with a retrospective as well too, usually about two weeks after launch, we try to let the dust settle a little bit. Uh, but th- that has been a, a, like a real, I think, sign of maturity of the company where, um, you know, likewise, I've needed to step back. I think it's allowed other people to thrive, um, but still solving like real customer problems. Um, that, you know, therein becomes the debate of like, how much of a problem is this? You know, the the, the pervasiveness and urgency of the problem. And, but I mean, th- that's just nuanced um, kind of conversation that, that has. Let's switch to team then. So I know how you and Stephanie met. How, how did you build your team past that? And what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you? I definitely look for data-driven employees. Um, we have a a saying that, you know, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, just not your own facts. Uh, And so, you know, generally it's come armed with data. So even when we were talking about these market problems, it's like, you know, an instance of one is not a trend. Um, So what is the evidence uh, for this uh, being so pervasive and persistent that we must solve it. So I look for, and I ask about that, um, you know, in in those, uh, you know, interviews, but because we based our, we base our decision on, um, you know, both kind of the, 
the quantitative data, also the qualitative. I ask questions about, you know, an important decision that maybe a candidate has made before. And how did they come up with that decision? You know, and if I hear that they're like, oh, it was the first idea that popped into my mind. I'm like, ooh, I'm getting a little concerned, you know, versus like if, you know, well, again, if they lack like evaluating alternatives, that scares me um, just as much as, you know, picking the first idea uh, that comes to mind. So I want a methodical approach to decision making. And that by extension means, hey, pretty logical approach to product development and following a process, like a repeatable process. It's not that there's no creativity. The creativity comes in the design of the solution. But, you know, the the output of that solution is probably going to be a product requirements document that the development team has collaborated on and, and everyone's agreed, yes, this is the way we're going to solve this particular problem, uh, or at least our first crack at it. So I, I try to look for a pattern of not just in in business, but even if, you know, maybe a candidate, you know, mentions that they've recently moved. Oh, that's really interesting. Were you looking for, you know, a new apartment for long? You know, why did you decide on that particular location? What was it about this location? You know, how did you evaluate all your options? I'm sure there was, there was must have been tough to choose, right? And you're kind of just trying to draw out and, 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 and do that active listening for that decision-making process. Um, that, that's what I listen for in, in uh, new employees. Well, let's switch to scalability. And it'll be interesting to, to kind of hear your take on this and how you've approached it over time. But did you build this to scale efficiently from day one or were you fighting this as you grow? Some parts were built to scale. Uh, and other parts were sorely neglected. Um, for in, so for instance, you know, Salesforce, we had uh, the enterprise version of Salesforce early on, uh, which was, again, in hindsight, a little crazy that it was Stephanie and I having a two license, you know, two enterprise license of sales. They don't, I don't even think they sell them for like under 10 people nowadays. But we had two enterprise licenses. This was way before they were a publicly traded company. Um, very, very early on. But that was an example of a system that scaled very well. I was the admin for the first 10 years, so I knew it inside and out. I would be the one, you know, exporting from a MySQL database and importing all the data into Salesforce. It wasn't even automated. Um, and eventually we got it to do so. So I think our kind of like our backend systems that customers didn't necessarily see those tended to scale uh, quite well. And for those who you know have used Salesforce over the years, they've gone from far more than you know merely kind of managing customer support cases and sales and customer data, sales opportunities and so forth. But you know you could basically build whole new applications in there. So we had our HR system, our recruiting system all in all in Salesforce. Um, even our financial system was built on Salesforce, which was not great, but we had, we had, we, we were almost asking it to do more than really it was, it was built to do, but we were getting a lot out of one system. Uh, the web technology, we, we didn't scale so much. I mentioned we ran on a single server of Rackspace for again, really that first decade and that, um, you know, great uptime. They have their, you know, fanatical support as they call it. Um, but I think we realized, I think two, two, I mean, and I'm talking like 
one utility which had both the application and the database and all the file storage all on one one system or on, on one box. So as soon as we we, we ended up parsing out um, all of the files, the audio files, because voice talent are uploading samples of their voice for their profile, but also the auditions. And we moved that to Amazon S3 um, quite early on. And I remember the cost differential was uh, a, a, a rack space server that was $2,000 a month to Amazon S3, which was $2.13 a month. So we're just like, okay, this is clearly the future. And over the subsequent years, um, we did a pretty meaningful, you know, I, I used the term earlier, I think, you know, lift and shift from switching wholesale from uh, from Rackspace to Amazon, which now it's multi-instance, in, uh, it's, you know, redundancy, you know, with, you know, infrastructure around the world, CDNs, firewalls, load balancers, final, like, proper backup system like it's so much more sophisticated um but that just i think that was one of those areas that was like outside of my area of expertise so needing to find like cloud architects that could do that well um and it, it wasn't it wasn't that it was getting to the i mean the cost was a big motivator i think the lack of redundancy was just creating you know anxiety and realizing well hey we're, we're kind of operating on borrowed time here it's just we might not see a huge performance increase we might but it will allow us to continue to scale generally speaking Noah my philosophy has been buy and build systems 10x bigger than you need because 10x you can grow into actually pretty fast now it might sound like you're over engineering and over investing in the future but that certainly has played out well with both Salesforce and Amazon as being um, you know, two examples uh, where you almost you, you need to invest in a bit extra capacity, um, whether it's for this year or next year, or you're kind of in a longer term, con like if you're making a, let's call it like a technology, a long term technology decision, I, I try to think 10x where we are today, not necessarily 10 years, but just 10x where we are today, is this going to, will that decision still hold true? You're giving yourself enough runway, uh, believing in what you're building, seeing the traction from the market. It's sort of like being a step ahead, right, in, in your infrastructure and your technology. I'm a CTO, and, and so that's where I like to play. It's like I just want to be a step ahead because I don't want to be, you know, working 120 hours a week either, trying to bring something up from, you know, a brittle infrastructure yeah or like replacing what you just put in last year because oh we decided to go with some new upstart that's just trying something out like that's what i think a lot of startups have a big challenges with you're either selling to other small to medium-sized businesses or you know large enterprises are just going to be tremendously risk adverse to like why would we so you almost need to communicate to them that yeah that we're built to scale so that they feel uh, more comfortable as well well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I'd say the I'd say the marketplace itself. I love that we've that we're living out our mission to become the definitive destination for hiring creative talent. You know, bringing all of these parties together. Um, you know, if if our desire is to you know put good messages out in the world, that the content that people are hearing 
you know, is encouraging, it's uplifting, and we're a means of having that, you know, those words spoken, I think that is tremendously rewarding. Uh, then there's the, you know, the, the, the angle, if you will, of the talent themselves who, these are, these are, you know, independent people who had a dream to, you know, maybe they did silly voices as kids and, and or, you know, performed in a play and always thought, wow, could I do that? And can I create it, build a career um, doing that? And we, either through kind of, you know, video interviews or people just send us in great notes of like life change, um, particularly over the last, you know, 18 months, two years, if you will, during the pandemic where people were either gonna stuck or locked at home and just use that as an opportunity to say, I'm gonna give this a go and are grateful that they had, you know, a partner like Voices to, you know, pursue a career voice acting. So we hear those stories all the time. We share them at our, uh, at our weekly standup, which we call The Huddle. Uh, and, you know, whether it's customer stories or customer impact, um, that I think is really rewarding. So it's, it's a bit of an intangible. Um, but when I, I ask, you know, again, both whether it's in, I'm sitting in an interview and it's kind of a group interview and new, the, the, the candidate asks the, the, the rest of us, well, what is it you like working? Like, why do you like working at Voices? What stands out to you? And this theme of customer impact keeps coming up that we're in some small ways, you know, changing people's lives or just helping their, their messages get out there um, that perhaps otherwise couldn't. So that's, uh, you know, that's uh, rewarding for me. Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. I don't, I don't know if this is definitely a can, you know, I don't know if it's a mistake, uh, but certainly one that comes to mind is, uh, well, perhaps it is, it is a mistake, which is under, we, uh, you know, underestimating the response from users or underestimating customer response. Um, you know, very, you know, again, brief story here was we, we did end up, uh, raising, uh, nearly $20 million of, uh, in a series a from Morgan Stanley, a global investment bank, um, in, in San Francisco. And, uh, part of the use of proceeds was to acquire a then competitor. And, um, we actually interviewed a number of their customers to ensure like, Hey, they were going to be comfortable and okay and understand kind of where this is going to go without disclosing that we were acquiring them like hey what if we could partner with them and this type of uh, conversation and in the end when the announcement was made both during the capital raise and uh, the acquisition there was just this what I would coin like this just irrational market response of you know this fear that we were becoming you know too big when really it's a 120 person company in Canada like it's not that big of an organization we're not Google um, yet there was this concern that we were going to it was going to have a negative impact on them and that admittedly it did not see coming particularly because I had done the roadshow myself and visited these customers in New York and LA and Chicago and San Francisco and just I didn't understand. So afterwards, I kind of re-ran that roadshow and went to go see the same people again. And I go, 
I don't understand. And I looked in their eyes and I realized that they were concerned for their livelihoods. It was a lot of talent agents who are in some ways the very entities that are being disrupted. You know, they're, it's a long old school business that's being disrupted by freelance and online work where they were once the gatekeepers, if you will. And, uh, you know, a platform comes along where they're not as, you know, um, you know, they just had pre, you know previously not embraced. They didn't understand the technology in, in the same way, or or how just to use it. And so, kind of revisiting that um, those same folks, I realized they were concerned for their personal livelihood. That's what it was all about, and it was just this reaction, um, kind of against us, where we had no ill will. In fact, we went to lengths to build partnerships and relationships, but it just unfortunately wasn't reciprocated. So whether that was a mistake to acquire that company and kind of try to roll it in, um, I'm not sure. I I still feel like that was strategically the right move to make, but the unanticipated consequence, that's the part that we definitely talk through now, even in our retros and even in our product release planning is how might this be perceived? You know, as you say, the flip the script, it's like, oh, we think it's all going to be like sunshine and rainbows and unicorns and like, yeah, every change you make, someone's going to feel like you took something away from them. It's not what it used to be right down to like moving a button or, you know, sorting a table from ascending to descending. It's like that changed their day, especially for products where there's routine in, oh, I've always done it this way. I've always done it this way. And then you change it, or in our situation, it completely disappeared because we merged the two uh, platforms together. That's, I think, where there is a lot of concern for their own livelihood, um, which going forward, I would uh, encourage those, uh, again, listening, think about the, the consequence. You know, not everyone's, you know, how might somebody interpret this in, you know, and, and it it's hard to think about it that way because you think you're doing nothing but good, but um, how might someone view this as being negative to them? And how can we either change the messaging or do we really need to push it this far? And maybe it means just dialing it back a, a little bit or rolling something out in two or three iterations instead of one big one. Those are some kind of mitigating approaches. It sounds like you did everything you could do beforehand, because I don't know that I've ever heard of anybody interviewing customers to see how it was going to impact them. I feel like it was completely unanticipated. And, and I think that was, the, um, that was kind of the hard part, as you want to take someone's perspective at kind of face value. It's like, you're telling me this, like this, that what we're, what we're building and talking about building is going to be exactly what you want. Um, which, which is why I, th- I think there is, you know, kind of tying this back to, you know, product as well. There is certainly a lot of validity in running a survey or doing an interview ahead of time. But until the until that release is out there and people are using it, um, particularly if there's a monetary component of it, you know, like a price sensitivity test is completely different than putting a buy now button on your page with a credit card form. And people will say all kinds of things in in a survey you don't know who's filling the survey out but wow when 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 that's online it's kind of like that's the real deal and i i put far more stock in kind of real world behavior when something's live 
Um, so I have a tendency to kind of like, well, let's just push to get it out there. Like, do we have enough information to be confident that it has, you know, a chance to be successful um, versus trying to aim for perfection kind of in the lab or in isolation? It's better to get like real, real world data. Well, what does the future look like for voices, for the product and for your team? Well, there's many things we've learned in the last couple of years, certainly, that the, the future is unpredictable. Um, I think we'd agree on that one. And, you know, we need to remain uh, flexible, uh, need to pivot as, as need be. But, um, you know, I think one of the things that's kind of, you know, stood out to me and, and that is kind of leading into the future is that for the last while, we've really just been a voice-only marketplace. And through that, we've recognized that there's other complementary creative services that needed to be um, need to get done. So, uh, well, voice might be at the heart of the production. Noah, maybe there's some pre-production service. Somebody needs to write a script. Maybe they need that script to be translated into another language. And then, of course, the voiceover gets recorded, which is kind of where our, our strength is. But then, inevitably, afterwards, there's maybe some audio editing that needs to get done, mixing and music, and so for that, the uh, you know the it, the you know immediate present and future certainly is the evolution of this marketplace to recognizing that our talent are really multifaceted, and how do we enable them to showcase additional skills, and as well as how do we enable them to get hired for those skills. So just recently, you know, we're, we're kind of widening it, you know, the marketplace up from bearing purely voice to other creative services, still, are, you know, centered around voice and audio, but, um, you know, we have music, audio production, and, uh, and translation, you know, looking at some other complementary ones uh, even still, but uh, those are brand new just in the, in the last kind of couple of weeks. So uh, that's exciting to see how those build and, and evolve over time uh, so that that I'm that I'm definitely uh, excited about and and perhaps you know we're we're you know well we've done business in 160 countries around the world it's still kind of three quarters of all the activity is in the US are there global expansion opportunities as well too so those are the two vectors of growth that I see for uh, voices as a product and our team which are, you know, additional category expansion and even, you know, kind of uh, stretching those boundaries of into new geographies as well, geographic expansion. Well, let's switch to you, David. Who, who influences the way that you work? Name a CEO, a CTO, an architect, really, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why. One, one person I look up to uh, quite a bit, I've, you know, listened to a lot of his books would be uh, Patrick Lencioni. Um, Patrick is, you know, he, he probably wouldn't like the being coined a management consultant, but uh, I would say that uh, would be his, uh, you know, his his mo. He he writes a lot of these business fables, um, and they're just kind of short stories, you know, like death by PowerPoint and the five dysfunctions of a team, the temptations of a CEO, like, but they're done in story format. Um, they're great as audiobooks, so I think he's got a smart way to um, to describe the challenges of business that almost kind of paint this character that you can identify with. So I, you know, and more than just his approach to, um, you know, communicating, which he's an excellent communicator, 
Um, the other thing he's he's come up with is you know talking about how the best, the importance of having a healthy culture and health isn't always you know just the smartest people in the room. It's actually people that have that can exhibit empathy, that can exhibit you know you know clarity of thought and clarity in communication. And so it's important to have smart, healthy organizations, not just purely data-driven or just purely logical. It's a, a more well-rounded um, organization, like the, the IQ as much as the EQ, if you will. So he's fantastic. And his latest um, bit from uh, Patrick Lencioni is, um, you know, if you've ever done, you know, a personality test uh, like a Myers-Briggs He's come up with this concept called the working genius, which talks about the different roles that are in the workplace because personality tests, most of them are just that for kind of like you relate. It's all around relationships and a lot of personal relationships. And there's certainly many parallels into the workplace. Um, but he's specifically focused, focused on this working genius and uncovering these new personas, if I could use that, such as, you know, the discerner. It's one thing to have the wanderer who's coming up with the new ideas and then the like the visionary who kind of puts it into practice and the galvanizer gets everyone all excited. But you can't just jump right to like, oh, let's just go do it. Like there's this discernment piece of, huh, I'm not sure that's the right time to do it. I'm not sure. Or maybe that might be better bundling these two work packages together and that is a very often overlooked skill within an organization to create a bit of pause to evaluate alternatives um, and he's uncovered these type of working geniuses it's a great podcast um, you know my wife's got me into it quite a bit um, but but I followed him for years so I think he's uh, I think he's a pretty smart guy well, you know, we talked about a mistake, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach? Well, you know, it's 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 easy now to say what you would do differently. I think there's some times where, um, you, you know, even just from a practical standpoint, like I wish I moved faster and made decisions, like knowing what I know now and how it played out, I probably would have been a lot more aggressive um, or invested a lot more in Google AdWords way earlier when it was like five cents a click, you know, which now it's like $2. So there's, you know, a, a little bit of tongue in cheek, but there's those kind of, they're not even regrets. It's just, I even apply that now and go like, boy, cost of online traffic of just buying new visitors to your website is probably only going up. There's just more businesses competing. So uh, let's be diligent about doing that. No, I, I think looking back, you know, sometimes when, both giving and receiving, you know, a no, that have to interpret that, that sometimes it actually means no and therefore just move on. So probably lost time, you know, hoping that something might turn, magically turn into a yes. Other times, it actually means not yet. And having that, you know, whether it's, you know, I guess discernment or intuition or even just asking like, let me, let me help me understand does this actually mean no? Or are you just saying, hey, maybe I should, you know, truly I should actually kind of come in and check in, you know, next year. Um, I think that's a really important uh, skill, if you will, 
when starting out in business or as an entrepreneur, kind of, you're going to hear a lot more of those no's and just kind of understanding like, maybe I should just let them go and not everything's a not yet, but if it is a not yet, then, then it's worthy of, of, uh, of holding, uh, holding on to. Um, and then probably like on the flip side, I'd also step back from like pressing on a topic, maybe too long, like holding on to something that I believed to be true or knew to be true. But in, you know, again, having this high degree of conviction, um, and then not actually having a lot of backup for it. So only now it's like, I can't expect the rest of the team to to come armed with data or customer insights or a customer story to validate something. Likewise, I need to live up to that uh, as well too. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it, maybe it's in that ideal team player notes, which I sounds, sounds like you'd be a great ideal team player, but living, living out kind of like what you expect from others um, and kind of living that out day to day, not having like almost like this double standard. Not that I think that was the case, but I think it, it just took me longer to mature in my own career to, to recognize that I need to, you know, we all need to kind of play by the same rules of engagement when making decisions. I appreciate the kind words. Last question, David. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? You know, the advice that I'd give to that person is, uh, you know, first and foremost, you know, you're going to be taking things day by day. You know, we talk about the, oh, this five-year plan, it's going to be successful next year and so forth. But the the day by day is is actually really important because it 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 causes you to um, to certainly live in the present to make sure you're making good decisions today. And we talked about strategy being in effect choices. So how might you make good choices? And this um, tool, this mental model, was given to me, um, and it's actually a whole book by Susie Welch, who is the uh, you know she, she, bright bright uh, woman in her own right. And she has this concept called 10-10-10, which basically says whenever you come to that fork in the road, you need to evaluate that choice based upon, you know, the next 10 minutes, the next 10 months, and the next 10 years. And what I love about that is that it frames up kind of short, medium, and long-term consequences. Because too often we're just going to say, oh yeah, no, it's it, it's going to be great next year. It's like or I'm going to feel good in 10 minutes or five minutes from now. I might feel good, but then I realize it was actually a bad decision. It's going to have longer term consequences. Now, I've certainly not been perfect on this by any stretch, but I think when you get to those moments to say, I, I, I'm being pressed to make a decision now. I know I need to make a decision now, but let me make the decision now, not hastily so that I can just move on to the next thing, but thoughtfully in the context of the next 10 months and the next 10 years. And I think that's great whether it's personal relationships or whether it's a technology deployment or, you know, I would imagine in your role, a critical technology choice. You know, it's kind of that 10x scale idea. I'm like, oh, great, I made the decision for 10 months, but I don't want to have to revisit it again. So I would I would probably, like I'm doing here today, I'd probably try to share that tool um, because more times than not, it's actually served me uh, served me quite well. That's great advice. Well, David, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Voices. Good to be here, Noah. Thanks for having me. 
And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Say big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in store and on Menards.com. Say